Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. So again, that's in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what, do you, what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What is good? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Good morning again. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned before, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and there's a few of us, as well as uh, directors and that sort of thing. And uh, Pastor Todd, our lead pastor, had complete shoulder replacement surgery, actually, in his right shoulder, uh, right at the very end of December, and he's been in recovery mode. But right now, he's on his way to Chicago, where a few of us on staff are going to be joining him down there for a pastor's conference. And I share that with you because I want to invite you to pray for us, uh, just that we would hear what we need to be. We're part of a larger community that's part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And uh, you can pray for us. And, and where does God want us to listen? And where does God want us to speak? And uh, just that we find rest and those kinds of things. I know Mike's going as well. And Ed DeForest is going. Marjo's going. And uh, Lori and Todd are already down there. And I'm headed out there as well. Well, we're in a series called New Year's Revelations. You can see it behind me. And the idea, you know, when Jesus walked this earth, that people kept getting a clearer picture of who he was and what his message was. And people always asking, who is this Jesus? And by what authority does he do the things that he does? And all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so the thought was in this New Year Revelation, we're a little bit like that too. As we get to know and, and, and learn to discern the voice of Jesus, uh, 
the significance of, of his way of life and his teaching continues to grow in our life. And uh, I was just reflecting this week on, on the Apostle Paul. You might remember, I think, I think I have it written down here actually. It's in Philippians 1.21. He, he makes a surprising, to me, a surprising statement. Because in Philippians, he's writing, because he's in prison. And, you know, his, what, what's going to happen to his life is a little bit uncertain. And the Philippians are, are worried about him. And he, he makes a statement, hey look, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. So, in other words, there's something about Paul's identity that, that was so wrapped up in the identity of Christ that to live was somehow to be always, always connected to the life of Jesus Christ. So he says, to live is Christ. I tell you what, I, I want that. I, I, if I'm honest, I don't always want it. You know, I don't always want it. But we live in, in a world where we so compartmentalize everything and it's really easy to think that we can just take a little bit of Jesus. Paul says, to live is Christ. And so in this series, the New Year's Revelations, we want the words and the life and the action of Jesus to impact us so our vision of Jesus and our identification with his life grows. Does that sound good? Oh, okay, good. just want to make sure I'm in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to see, actually, pretty specifically this morning, uh, this, this take place. We're going to watch this take place with Jesus' followers, okay? And uh, you see this passage right here. And I, I want to back up just a little bit. And I want to talk about kind of a way that I've gotten from somebody else, but a way to, to arrange um, the book of Mark, okay? Now, Mark, his name was John Mark. He was around when Jesus was around, but he, he was a disciple. He followed Paul. Remember, he was the one that Paul rejected at some point on his second missionary journey. But later in his life, they had been restored, and Paul deeply valued Mark. But Mark also hung out with Peter a lot. So Mark's gospel, for some, they say Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. It's the story of Peter, and a lot of Peter's failings, a lot of things that Peter said and did are in Mark's gospel. Because uh, Mark was a disciple of Peter. He followed Peter around and collected some of his writings. So Mark has a reason why he's writing, right? He's writing his gospel. And this is the only place where he gives us his opinion about who Jesus is. It's right in the very opening sentence. It says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So he calls it, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's his opinion. But let me lay out the story for you and let you decide. Okay, let you decide how you're going to respond to the person of Jesus and what he says and what he does. So what we have is we have a, a, the Galilee ministry that's in Mark chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 8. And what we're seeing there is people respond. That Jesus' disciples, the crowds, the religious leaders, they're trying to figure out who is this Jesus? Who is he? And they're surprised, and we're going to go over that a little bit. But then in the second part, from 8b to 10, it's on the road. There's these references to the fact that they're traveling, because they're making their way, and I'm going to show you a map a little later, but they're making their way from Galilee, and they're headed for Jerusalem, okay? And along this way, 
They're discerning what we just read the passage where Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah. But what does that mean, really? And, and it's focused a little bit more on the disciples. What does it mean? And then in uh, Jerusalem, there's this paradoxical messianic king because Jesus ascends to the throne by going through the cross. Completely unexpected. Unexpected pathway. So that's, that's what we have. That's what we're going to be looking at. So the, the passage specifically we're looking at is this right here at 8a, okay? And let's just take a look real quick at what's been happening. As Jesus shows up, and they're asking the question again, who is this Jesus? But what they're noticing is he's got power over evil spirits. It's in the Mark story. He, he, right away in the first couple of chapters, he cast a demon out of somebody in the temple. Later on, he cast the legion of demons and cast them into a pig. So he demonstrates spiritual power over evil spirits. And over sickness, disease, and defects. Jesus goes around healing, okay? He has the power to forgive sin. You remember uh, maybe in Mark chapter 2 is where the paralytic, the, the, the four gentlemen, they lower the guy down. And um, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And so he, he, he takes the opportunity to make a little jab at the religious leaders too. But anyway, but he has power to forgive sin. He has the power over nature. The very end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, is where Jesus calmed the storm. And it says the disciples were terrified. Who is this guy? See, who is he? Even the waves and the winds obey him, right? And then uh, later on, he walks on the water, and he demonstrates other places where he has the power over nature. He speaks with authority. He doesn't speak as one with teacher, like one of the teachers of the law. He doesn't make reference simply to God's word. He says... Um, you know, we see this a lot in Matthew's gospel, like on the Sermon on the Mount, where he doesn't just say, well, in Isaiah, we read this. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. See, he speaks with authority. Like he has the right and authority to speak into people's lives. He has power over death. And even in the beginning of Mark, we see the story of the two daughters of Israel, the woman who reaches out to touch Jesus' cloak in the crowd. And right after that, I think it's, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong. Is it Jarius, right? Somebody tell me. When you Bible scholars out there, right? So uh, anyway, his servants come and say, don't bother the master. Your daughter's dead. Jesus says, don't worry. Just believe. And he demonstrates his power over death in that situation. And And then toward the latter part of this, so Jesus is exercising his power and authority. He sends his disciples out two by two. And they exercise his power and authority, right? So that's, that's what's kind of leading up. So now, now they start on this way. So Jesus asks this question. He begins, let me just read this again. This is Mark chapter 8. By the way, I'm going to back up just a hair to the end of chapter 7. Somehow my slide did not get saved. But at the end of chapter 7, I want you to notice that this is an exciting time of ministry. There's some cool things that are happening, right? And, you know, Jesus' disciples are down around there to watch it all. And one of the last miracles that he does, up until our passage, this is how the people respond. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. They said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. 
There, you know, the crowds are liking Jesus. Wow. He gives us food to eat. That was another thing he did, by the way. He fed thousands of people. He gives us food to eat. He heals our... Inf- this, this, this is a good guy. We like this guy, right? Now, as we get to this question at the beginning of uh, Mark 8, it seems from our perspective, who have grown up with an understanding, a broader maybe understanding or, or at least a knowledge of the narrative of Jesus' life, right? We may wonder, how was it that it was hard for people to figure out that Jesus was the Messiah? See, because Jesus asked his disciples, and this is the part I want to read again. Jesus and his disciples went on the, uh, were on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So he's, he's probing to see what they understand, what they've been able to see and perceive. They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And then Jesus answers. He steps forward. You are the Messiah. Okay? Now, Mark's gospel doesn't go into this too much right here, but in, uh, I think it's Matthew's gospel, one of the other gospels, Jesus says, you know, you know this because God has revealed it to you, right? See, to us, it seems obvious. I mean, who can walk on water and, and raise the dead and do those kinds of things? But, but I think, I think if we were to meet Jesus on an everyday kind of a bait, you know, if we would have just crossed paths with him, I think he would have seemed pretty ordinary. He would have been a regular guy. In fact, there's even indications in Scripture from places like Isaiah 53 that when you looked at Jesus, you didn't necessarily just go, oh my goodness, here is the Messiah, right? There was something about him that, that people found offensive even. Because he, he, you know, who is this guy that he thinks, you know, he can speak with authority, that he can do these things? By what power is he doing them? So I don't think it was obvious. And not only that, there were other people in history, and there will be people, like Peter later, Peter and Paul. They raise people from the dead. They do it in the power of God. Maybe Jesus is just a prophet, or maybe he's John the Baptist, you know? But they don't see him as Messiah. There's something about him. It, it, it just doesn't, it's not that obvious. Yeah, he's done some things. He's done some powerful things, and maybe he's exercising. But, but Messiah... And so when Jesus makes, or excuse me, when Peter makes this proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, that's a powerful statement. Because their vision, the first century Jewish mind, their vision of who the Messiah was, this is the anointed one from heaven. Let me read this from, I think I have it actually up on the, this is from Daniel 7.14. So this is one of the prophetic voices about the Messiah he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I want to read another passage of scripture from Isaiah. This is Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From the roots, a branch will bear fruit. By the way, Jesse is King David's father. So what this is proclaiming is Jesus is the son of David, the prophetic, the one who has been prophesied, right? 
The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. And a little later on in that same passage, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and his faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So, conveniently, Jewish teaching at the time, they see those passages as descriptive of who the Messiah was, and not so much passages like Isaiah 53. Are you familiar with Isaiah 53? Those are the passages that say he was whipped. He was, we considered him stricken by God. We considered him an outcast. Okay? Somehow they didn't see that passage related to the Messiah. But it's, but it's the Daniel 7. It's the Isaiah 11. So can you imagine when Peter says this, and they're just starting their journey towards Jerusalem. Wow. I bet, I bet when he comes into his kingdom, we're going to be able to sit pretty close. We're going to be right up there. Hey, when you just went on that missionary journey that Jesus sent in, how many people did you heal? Three? We did, we did four. We healed four. And... We, uh, we anointed some oil on people, and they began to, you know, do some amazing things. Wow, this is exciting. We're going to be right up there. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to defeat our enemies. This is what we've been learning about in Sunday school for years, right? So the trajectory they saw was this, Messiah. Isaiah 11, the conquering king. And somehow Jesus must have known this or sensed this. I mean, we're getting part of the story. I'm not sure if we need to read between the lines or whatever it is, but it says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. I mean, this is good news, right? Why should... This, this is something to proclaim. This is to get everybody out there and do it. Come on. The Messiah has shown up. Here comes our salvation. But Jesus understanding that they had the wrong perception of what Messiah is, right? So who is he? They got the title right. But what does Messiah mean? That's the part that they're having trouble with. And it's hard for us to capture how sharp this contrast is. When it says that Jesus warned, Peter, that in the Greek, that's the same word that Jesus rebuked spirits with. He said, hey, I don't want you to tell anybody. I don't, want, I don't want you guys to spread your idea of what I'm here for to anyone. And the passage goes on then. He goes, uh, he began... As they were on the road, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. It's hard for you and I, because we look back and we, we see the whole narrative. This was scandalous. You know, it was like saying... Uh, I don't know. I'm, this was offensive to the Jewish mind. 
I mean, where is Jesus getting this idea? In Corinthians, Paul says that the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and how Jesus the Messiah conquered sin and death, says it's, this, it's foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jewish mindset. And see, and so Peter and the disciples now are, are going to demonstrate this, this is all wrong. Jesus obviously missed the Sunday school lesson, right? And so as Jesus is talking about that, finally Peter, Peter takes him aside. And this is the only place in Scripture, and, and I, looked, I looked a little bit. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd be curious. This is the only place in Scripture where you see one of Jesus' disciples rebuking Jesus. So it's not a question. You see, you see Jesus' disciples question Jesus, but Peter rebukes them. And, it, and the implication is Peter knows what God's design and plan is. And Jesus is really screwing it up. Never mind that he just called him Messiah. He just called him Messiah. He has the title how could Jesus, the Messiah, the one who argues with religious leaders, who walks on water, who can raise the dead, but get so confused about what the Messiah is supposed to do? We're going to Isaiah 11, right? We're not going... Uh-oh, you can't see it on the... Oh, you can. Good. We're not going to Isaiah 53. He took Jesus aside to rebuke him. I just wonder if we could have heard that conversation, what, what it would have sounded like. Jesus, what are you talking about? You're taking this, we got a good thing going here. You're popular with the people right now. We've got momentum. We've got people on our side. And we're headed to Jerusalem. You're taking this thing in the ditch and you're dragging us down with you. Right? So that helps explain, I think, a little bit why Jesus' rebuke is so strong, right? And I love how uh, Mark's gospel, at least in the NIV, how it presents it here. Because it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, right? Not question, rebuke. You got it wrong. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he looks. You could almost picture the disciples are back there. They've been feeling the same tension, too. They go, oh, good, Peter's going to talk to him now. Let's see how this goes down. You have to understand that other times they were afraid to talk about with Jesus about things. But this is serious. Jesus is really messed up. So they're standing back, maybe, and watching. How's this going to go? And you can hear Peter says this. Jesus turns and he sees his disciples. They're standing back there going, how's this going to go? Right? Behind me, Satan. Wow! Wow! If you look at what Peter was suggesting, though, it's very similar to how Satan tempted Peter, or excuse me, Satan tempted Jesus, right? Look, there's an easier way. There's a better way. Satan came to Jesus and said, Look, you love this world. You want it. I'll give it to you. This will be a much easier way. Just bow, worship me. And I'll get out of the way after that. You can have it all. See, there's similarities between that and Peter saying, 
there's a better way. What, you know, what, what are you talking about? I love this description. I want to read it real quick. So Peter thinks that Christ will establish a reign of peace and righteousness by overthrowing the powers who hold God's people, Israel, in a vice of oppression. The Christ is, by definition, a winner, destined for honor and glory. Anyone with Jesus, anyone with Jesus' amazing powers to silence the sea and unclean spirits, to heal the sick with a word or a touch, and to feed thousands from a few scraps is headed for glory and universal veneration. Anyone who has heavenly authority to forgive sins on earth and to determine what is permissible on the Sabbath, just making references to things that happened in Mark, need not suffer on earth. How can such a Messiah be rejected and become the victim of violence? For Peter, a suffering Messiah is impossible. The Messiah will come as a triumphant hero, dishing out a punishment to those who oppose him. He's the Lion of Judah. What's this weakness? What's this laying down your life? What's this being betrayed by our, you know, our leaders, our elders, our chief priests? What is that? So Jesus he makes a pretty, pretty firm stand. And he rebukes the spirit behind the message. Behind me, Satan. And he continues, let me just read this. It says, Behind me, Satan, he said, for you do not have the things in mind, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd. He, he called everybody close by. Draws a line in the sand. Not simply, hear this, please. Not simply to keep people out. But to invite you and I in. To invite you and I in. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my learner, the one who learns from me, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Wow. Now Jesus is talking about us taking up crosses. Oh, my goodness. Oh. He is taking us down, man. He is taking us down. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So Jesus is laying a thing and said, Look, you got the title right. I'm Messiah. So let's be clear on what that means. I'm going this way. In fact, let me see if this is my next slide. I might come back to this, but those are the three things. But he's going this way. This is a, this is a map of, uh, obviously, the Palestine there. And um, you can kind of see that where that blue, where it says area of detail up there. That's, that's uh, Galilee area. When I visited Israel here a number of years ago, Crandall and I were roommates. We had a blast. But anyway, that's a side note. Anyway, you know the thing that struck me about that? See, Galilee, it's po-dunk. Little towns that Jesus could walk in between and teach and stuff. Just very po-dunk, okay? This passage where we just read, 
It, it takes place right at the very edge of the Israeli nation, up there in Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi, right? The very at the top there. And as you read the gospel, you realize it's now Jesus is on a mission. He is going to Jerusalem to fulfill God's will for him as Messiah, as the suffering servant, as the king who gives up his life, right? So it's in that um, context, he says, look, if I'm Messiah and I'm going this way, then that means I have authority over you and your life. I have a claim to you, right? So he invites us to deny ourselves. That's not to deny who we are, but it's to give up my self-determination where I get to decide what's best for me. Now I have a Messiah, and he decides what's best for me. I yield my will. I yield my affections. I deny that part of me that wants to operate independently and just take a little bit of Jesus when it's convenient, when it serves my goals, when it whatever. I deny that part. And it says, take up your cross. It means I'm prepared to experience death. If not physical death, it's releasing those things in my life that feels like death. And even... If the gospel calls for it, as I live out this new value system where I follow the Messiah and I experience scorn and people ridicule me and people think I'm silly because I do weird things. See? And this follow me that Jesus, he's not just talking abstract like follow me. He's going to Jerusalem. It's a very real road. It's day by day. And what you discover as we continue to read in Mark's gospel, this isn't like the disciples in this passage right here. And this is really good news for me. Hopefully good news for you. But it's not like the disciples said, oh, Jesus, you're right. Sorry, we're going to follow you. We're going to take up our cross. And that's the end of the matter. We're sorry we ever brought it up. Now, as you continue to read... They're like you and I. They're slow to catch on. We need a New Year's revelation. We need a bigger picture of who Jesus Christ is. And we have to come to the end of ourselves. Self-determination. I watch out for me and my value. I need to find my value, my worth, my purpose in Jesus so I can say like Paul, for me to live is Christ. Right? So it's very practical day-to-day in how we live. In fact, I'm going to make two quick applications, okay? So in the very next chapter, and actually Jesus ends that passage in, in uh, 9.1, he makes it clear, uh, let me go, I'm going to back up this, he makes it clear that there is an Isaiah 11. But we have to go, we have to go through Isaiah 53 first. Okay, they didn't see that that way, but just there is an Isaiah 11. Some of you here will not taste death before you see the kingdom come in power. Okay, and scholars have different ideas about what that's in reference to. But you know, Jesus didn't always make it easy for his disciples to choose to stay follow him. 
Some scholars say this was a very difficult time. We don't understand the degree to which Jesus had played. He had, he had messed with their whole worldview and what they thought was going to happen, what their lives were going to look like as a result of following the one who could walk on water. And now he's talking about denying myself and taking up a cross. It's difficult. And we see that Peter, at least, and maybe John, James and John, they were sort of when you read the gospel accounts, they were sort of the leaders. And so we have this experience that happens right after this. And they go up on a mountain and they see the glory of God. You know, the transfigurations was called. We see, uh, so the, Peter, James, and John are up there. Moses shows up in Elijah. Well, where, where have we seen Moses and Elijah before? Mount Sinai, right? Moses had this mountaintop experience with God. Elijah... And now, there they are again. But this time, Jesus is the embodied glory of God. Reveals himself in God's glory as the true Messiah. And they hear a voice, right? They hear a voice. They, we've heard a voice before in Mark's gospel. You remember in the first eight chapters, we're kind of looking in, and, and we're, we're like the crowds. Who is this Jesus, right? And as we look in the very first chapter, what we see is, is, is uh, John the Baptist comes, announcing the kingdom to show up, and who shows up? It's Jesus. So we're watching, and, and, and we hear this voice from heaven, and the voice in heaven, as we watch in, is speaking to Jesus, and it says, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And we get to watch from the outside. Wow. This time, this time the voice speaks to the disciples. They speaks to you and I. Very similar words from heaven. God's words. What does he say? This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. What does it mean to listen to God? Have you ever had your parents, or maybe, maybe we have some young people here, it's like, parents ever say, you're not listening to me. And he's like, no, I heard what you said. Yeah, but you're not listening, right? See, when we listen to Jesus, we allow him to speak in our lives and have authority in our lives that impacts the way that we live. When I was going to college, I had a um, theology class that we were looking at all different kind of traditions related to sort of Christianity, but from very, very um, broad perspective. Very, I went to a Baptist college, so we were fairly conservative, but we were looking at, you know, all the way up to universalism, which, by the way, the universalist church, the leader from that church that I talked to said, there, there are no spiritual laws. You can believe whatever you want, essentially, okay? But we had a guy that was there. He was a professor at Willamette University, and he was part of the Jesus Seminar. What the Jesus Seminar did, these are scholars, and they're looking at the life of Jesus and his words, and they voted together as a democratic, democratic process by where they voted, and they would look at what Jesus did and what he said, and they voted one of four ways. Yeah, we think he did this, or he said this. Second way, he probably did it, or he probably said it. 
third, third bead, it was like colored beads or something like that. Well, we don't think he probably said this, and we don't think he probably did that. And fourth is, we definitely don't think he said that. We don't, definitely don't think he did that. And I asked him after, after class, I said, doesn't that sort of put you above Scripture? You get to decide what Jesus says. I didn't say it quite like that. But that's what I was thinking. Is like, now, now you've placed yourself over God's Word. You get to decide what He says. You get to rebuke Jesus. You get to argue with the Messiah. One of the ways that we can deny ourselves is to listen to Jesus Trust that the one who made us, the one who designed us for relationship with us, knows better than we do what we need. Knows better than we do. So this is my son whom I love. In in today's day and age, it's like, well, I agree with this, but I don't agree with that. See, Jesus has authority, only the authority that I give him. I have authority over Jesus in my life. We live very much in a day and age where that's the case. It's not easy. I struggle with this, right? So that's, that's one area where I think this, this passage, and the other one has to do with this picture right here, right? This picture. This, to me, describes a lot of life right there. I'm just curious, is there any, I mean, if there's any high schoolers in the room, does this represent anything that you see happening in high school with cliques and social groups? I mean, we have so much discussion about that. Who's on social media this and who's done this, you know, and what people are wearing and who said what. And, and, and uh, I want, I have good news. When you get into adulthood, people don't do this anymore. Right? I guess it's, it, we do it, we just are a little bit more subtle about it, right? And if you're Christian, the way that you do it, it's okay to step on somebody, but you just say you're sorry, see? Sorry about that. I love how she's got the, the gal there, has a, a grip on the thing, right? But we see this kind of mentality, this, this need to jockey for position, the need in our culture that there's winners and losers, and we, we manipulate the people and the circumstances around us to make sure that we're higher on the ladder than the losers. Right? And in fact, when you continue to read the gospel story, what you find is in, um, at one point, along the way, they're headed to Jerusalem, and Jesus says, hey, you guys were arguing about something on the road. What was that all about? We don't really want to say. We don't really want to say. All right, it was who is most important. Who's the big shot? So Jesus gently reminds them again, right? And a little bit later in the story, James and John, right? Now they're jocking. Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, do you think that they're getting it? They're still thinking, you know, Isaiah 11. When you come into your kingdom, we want to be on your left and your right. We want to be, you know, obviously you're most important. But we think we've earned the right to be right on the right and the left. And that's where Jesus says, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. 
Here's the thing in our culture. You know, our culture, what's difficult is we have been influenced by the Judeo-Christian value. And I think sometimes it's harder for us to separate out the true radical nature that Jesus has called us to from what our culture thinks. So let me give you an example of that. I think it's real easy in our culture sometimes to... to we, we do things for people not because we value that other person, but because we want to be the kind of person who's nice, who gives things to people, who's generous, right? And what we do is we serve people we perceive as lower on the ladder as a way to take a step ourselves. Serving people on the bottom costs something. That's what Jesus did. He turned the ladder upside down. You see, Jesus continued to go straight to the bottom. Straight to the bottom. Why? Why would he do that? Because human beings are infinitely valuable to God. Infinitely valuable. And they have dignity and purpose. You see, Jesus wasn't a heart. He, he didn't do it to make himself look good. He, be, he did it because they're worthy of his, of his um, attention. Not because they had it all together, but because they were created in God's image. And they were the people he came to rescue. So I begin to follow Jesus the way that he called me to follow when it costs me and I begin to really, truly care about the other person without being worried about how that's going to make me look or feel. So those two points about God's Word and about, about caring for the people around us, there's kind of references back to Pastor Dave from two weeks ago and Pastor Mike from last week and sharing about compassion, justice, and mercy. It's not easy. But thankfully, Jesus, he's full of truth, but he's full of grace too, right? He came full of grace and truth. And I don't know about you, but I get, I, I get challenged by this. But I'm so glad that as I continue each day, as he leads the way down the path, I get to choose again. I make my mistakes just like the disciples do, and I'm sure you do too. As we look into 2018, may it be that as we get to the very end of the year, we can say more easily, fully, whatever, for me to live as Christ. I'm more identified with Christ, his life, his passion than I ever have been before. And we have to, we have to submit to his authority, not rebuke his authority in our lives. We have to care about the things that he cared for and allow his love and purpose and dignity he gives us to set us free from having to try and find it ourselves. Does that make sense? That makes sense? Let's pray and let's ask God to help us as we do that as the worship team comes. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing to us the way in which we can be like Jesus and we can follow after him. It's hard. But you're patient with us. Thank you for speaking the truth. Help us to identify those areas in our life today that we need to die to, that we need to deny, 
that we need to put aside so that we can follow Jesus along the way. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for wanting us to be with you on the way. And we choose to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.